On this week's dose, we have Matt Cohen, founder and managing partner of Ripple Ventures, an early stage venture firm based out of Toronto, Canada. After working in banking out of college, Matt's entrepreneurial journey began as a founding investor for Turnstile Solutions, a startup that he helped build all the way through eventually being acquired by Yelp. From there, Matt invested in several early stage companies before founding Ripple Ventures in 2017. Yeah, Matt tells us all about Ripple Ventures and their fine-tuned investing thesis, how they differentiate themselves as hands-on investors, as well as a couple notable portfolio companies and the qualities he and the team look for in their founders. And stay tuned to hear Matt's point of view on the current venture capital market, as well as where he thinks it's going in the next few years. He also added some commentary on the AI revolution. We wrap up this week's dose with the story of Matt's podcast, Tank Talks, and how that came to be. And of course, you'll hear about his advice as well as some of his top resource recommendations for the pilgrims looking to get into venture. It was truly a pleasure hosting Matt on this week's dose, and we're excited to share his story and perspective with you all. Here it is. The views, statements, and opinions expressed herein by the hosts and their guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast should not be construed as reflecting the views or implied endorsement of Independent Brokered Solutions, LLC, or any of its officers, employees, or agents. The statements made herein should not be considered an investment opinion, advice, or recommendation regarding securities of any company. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and is not to be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy a security. This is Venture Pill, your weekly dose of startups and venture capital. We break down recent startups in the news and interview founders and investors to help you stay informed in the evolving world of venture. All right. On this week's Dose, we welcome on Matt Cohen, founder and managing partner of Ripple Ventures, an early stage venture firm out of Toronto. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Sam. Yeah, we're excited to get into your story and certainly like to start out just by hearing a little bit more about yourself. What was your journey like from your early career in banking now into the world of venture? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Toronto, born and raised. I went to school on the east coast of Canada, uh, Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and majored in uh, business, finance, economics, and I did a co-op degree there. So I got to work, uh, you know, in finance for the Royal Bank of Canada on the trading desk, actually, uh, in my first uh, two co-op terms between second and third year university. And that was an incredible experience. I was the first co-op student that they ever hired on the trading desk. In fact, they thought I was an MBA graduate when I applied. I fooled them to let me come and work for them as a co-op student. So I learned the ins and outs of institutional equities, trading, investment banking, um, you know, equities, convertible notes, all the different products that they were selling to institutional investors. And I gravitated towards the hedge fund world. Obviously, at a time, it was kind of like the, the uh, renaissance of hedge funds in like early 2000s, 2004, 5, 6, 7 before the global financial crisis took everyone out, um, it was really the heyday for a lot of venture funds, or sorry, for hedge funds. And so I spent the first part of my career working for RBC in New York and then moved down, or in Toronto, and then moved down to New York in 2008, nine, just at the beginning of the crisis. So spent a couple of years living in Tribeca, covering global hedge funds, running a liability book of business for the bank and trading on behalf of the bank's balance sheet. 
and just learning the ins and outs of institutional capital, uh, you know, hedge funds, large asset managers, uh, and the public markets at large. Uh, never really having any exposure to private equity, venture capital, but I gra also gravitated towards the M&A path. So mergers and acquisitions, LBOs were quite big, obviously, at that time. Uh, and I got to see a lot of how those deals were structured and eventually compensated. So I learned a lot about that sort of stuff. But it was not until I moved back to Toronto after the global financial crisis and the dust had settled in 2012, 13, where I was still working at the bank and started a tech company with two buddies. Um, they were university friends, started a company called Turnstile Solutions with them. I wrote the first check to get it started. As I mentioned, I was not a founder because I was still working at the bank, but I moonlighted with the business for several years, uh, helping them get everything off the ground, sales, you know, investors, uh, hiring, uh, legal, whatever needed to be done. And I learned the ins and outs of starting an early stage tech company with little capital and resources. Long story short, we graduated the business up to, you know, uh, you know, several dozen employees, eventually profitability and eventually an exit to a public company, Yelp, in 2017. Uh, after passing on an initial offer from Groupon uh, early on in the journey and just saw the trials and tribulations that happened along the way in building an early stage software business in Toronto, uh, which had a very nascent ecosystem at the time um, and got to see that journey firsthand and all the, the suffering that went along with the founder's journey and the early employees and stuff like that. Um, and then eventually moved to Boston, worked for a fintech company, uh, selling enterprise software to global financial institutions, given my background working in, in Wall Street. And uh, during my time in Boston, saw a ton of early stage opportunities coming out of the incubators and accelerators out of MIT and Harvard and Cambridge, uh, and started making angel investments uh, with some of the proceeds I'd made from the sale of Turnstile, along with some other investment capital I had personally under my own family office brand called Ripple Capital, uh, and had some pretty good exits. My, you know, I call it Fund Zero. Uh, Fund Zero was a six and a half X DPI for me, uh, which was pretty amazing. And so a lot of family offices in my network, you know, asked me if I would raise an institutional or family office fund for them to invest in. And that's what kicked off Ripple Ventures in 2018 with Ripple Ventures Fund One, which was a $10 million fund. That is quite the journey. Thank you for walking us through that. Sounds like you had some incredible experiences that helped lead you on your way to creating Ripple Ventures. Curious, what was the moment that you realized venture investing was your passion? Yeah, so I guess like going through the journey of Turnstile and being a part of like the ground floor of building with the founders, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I kind of looked at it as like an MBA instead of doing an actual MBA. I actually was thinking about doing an MBA at Harvard when I was living in Boston. After seeing the price tag and realizing how long it would take for me to even get accepted, I realized this was probably a better path. But I was already well invested in Turnstile because it was beforehand. But I had thought about doing an MBA before, but you know, never really uh, got to writing the application. And this was my path to doing that. And what I meant by that was I got to see the real tough decisions that had to be made when building an early stage technology company. And through that journey and seeing that a company eventually exit, you know, successful exit. Uh, to Yelp after not raising much capital, it raised like a million plus dollars or so. Um, I really started getting attracted to the, uh, the, the hunt for the next one and also being a part of that journey. A lot of people think investing is, um, is easy and it is easy. Investing money is easy. I mean, you can spend money anywhere you want. It's a free world, but returning capital is what is the biggest challenge. You know, returning dollars back to yourself or to other investors is the hardest thing to do. And so seeing that happen 
for me, after also having some failures, I had a dozen or so angel investments. I went to zero. Uh, I was really intrigued by being one, a part of that journey and two, having an influence on the outcomes of those journeys was what really attracted me to venture capital at the earliest stage, because you were almost entering the company's existence at the same time the founders were, and you can try and, you know, impact the outcomes of those uh, businesses, those investments, you know, with my network, with my uh, experience and with my hard work as well to have a successful uh, return on investment. And that's what really attracted me to venture capital. Yeah. Uh, we can certainly resonate with that and definitely want to get into a little bit more on Ripple's thesis. Um, and I'm going to just state it as it's presented on your website, investing in customer obsessed teams, leveraging deep domain expertise to build N equals one products, solving difficult problems in global markets. So we're wondering, you know, that's, that's awesome. How do you differentiate yourselves? Are you guys, would you consider yourselves more boots on the ground, working hands on? than typical investors at this stage? Or how do you how do you position yourselves among other investors at a similar stage and sector? Yeah, so that that mission statement, that's taken us years to, to craft. And if, if anyone tells you they know what their mission is when they start their first venture fund, they're full of shit. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't actually happen until you've seen a couple failures and you've seen a couple successes and you've seen tens of thousands of companies. So when I set out to raise the first fund, I knew that based on my experience with Turnstile and a couple other angel investments, that we needed to be working alongside our founders day to day and be an extension of their founding team and management team, rolling up our sleeves. And so we actually set up our own incubator space in 2019, 2020 with our uh, first incubator called The Tank. It was a 5,000 square foot office, 50 desks, 50 chairs, and built them all myself with our team. And we worked alongside our first fund portfolio companies day to day. And we got to see them in their natural environment and not just waiting for a quarterly business update or annual update to see how they were doing or getting them to ask us for advice after a, you know, a, a monthly catch up. We were seeing them day to day in their environments, either failing or succeeding. And a lot of the times it was failing. 99% of the time it's, it's shit hitting the fan moments for founders. And you're there literally in the office next to them trying to help them. And so Seeing that in action and seeing how they can call on us for anything, you know, being their therapist, their business coach, their partner investor, that's what really allowed us to differentiate ourselves from the other investors out there. Um, so we weren't really an incubator. We weren't an accelerator. Accelerators have, you know, three, four months of hardcore work and then a demo day. We didn't have a demo day because it was already in our portfolio and it wasn't an incubator because we weren't just giving them free space to kind of collaborate and use like wet desk space, like a J labs or something. This was a uh, ripple only incubator space for our companies to work at any time they want. Uh, and then we brought in venture partners to work alongside us. So we brought in people who are CRM Salesforce experts, go to market experts, recruiting experts. We put in a fractional CFO into every one of our portfolio companies because we knew managing the books and managing their financial statements was a really hard thing to do and they didn't want to do it. So we had to put someone in place to take that over. And so seeing all of that stuff get to work and seeing the outcomes of, you know, the best companies in the tank succeeding and the worst ones leaning on the best ones to get advice from them. The ripple effect was actually happening in front of our eyes. And that was really cool as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the emphasis on being value add from the start, both in terms of capital, obviously, and something's like being the therapist and just helping talk through problems and all the road bumps that come across the startups desks. So we took a look, y'all have built quite a robust portfolio at ripple. 
Uh, would love to hear one or two compelling portfolio companies that you'd like to highlight. Yeah, I think like, you know, early on, you're always skeptical of like everything is, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed from an opportunistic point of view. And like everyone thinks their best investments uh, are going to come early. In fact, they usually come kind of late. Um, but for us, like our very first investment, we actually sold uh, to private equity firm Warburg Pincus and it was a great outcome for us. And that was a company called On Call Health. It was a virtual care telemedicine platform not just a telemedicine solution that was created in 2017. So before COVID and everyone was going virtual. Uh, so we definitely rode that wave, but it was really cool to be a part of that company's journey from the very beginning, working alongside the solo founder, Nick Chepswick and helping them recruit their early board members and their early advisors and employees. And that was just a really cool story for us to be a part of as our very first investment in fund one. And to see that have a successful exit several years later was, was quite special. The other investments, you know, we, we always like to draw people's attention to our investments like VoiceFlow, where they were not really well uh, liked by a lot of VCs because they were just building children's stories on Alexa devices when they first came to pitch us. And, you know, I had lived in Boston when Alexa had just come out. It wasn't available in Canada yet. And so I saw the cool factor and the, the actual application of it. Uh, and this was in 2017 or so. So when we first met with the team, they showed us what they were building and we said, look, it's not really for us. We don't do children's story building on Alexa, but, you know, put us on your monthly updates and we'll keep in touch. And they sure enough did. And two updates after that meeting blew us away and all the progress they had made. So we brought the team back in and I'll never forget the CEO showing us, you know, the, the software they had built internally to actually build their own stories on Alexa. And I was like, whoa, you built the software to build your own stories that's cooler than the stories itself. Let's talk about that application and where this can go. And so we ended up, you know, leading their pre-seed round and then helping them get their seed round with True Ventures and then eventually Series A and beyond. So that one's really exciting because they were totally shunned by a lot of traditional VCs for what they were building. But because we stayed close to them and because we built a close relationship with the founding team uh, in Toronto, we were able to have a first shot on it. And uh, it's been an incredible success for us. Yeah, two great examples there, and clearly, you know, you're you're looking for a, a differentiated product, like you mentioned there, but also certainly looking for qualities in the founding team or the individual founder, as you mentioned. What are those qualities you're looking for in successful founders, and how do you identify them as you're vetting uh, in diligence? Yeah, so as I've said, we've gotten much better at our qualification criteria over time. Um, one of the biggest things we look for is problem obsessed founders. And what we mean by that is not people who are trying to take a technology solution and apply it to any problem. We're trying to actually get them to understand the problem so, so well. This is why like second and third time founders are so well-funded is because they start with the problem and they obsess over the problem and they have not put any pen to paper yet on the, on the solution. Because if somebody comes with a solution first approach, they end up finding the wrong customers, the wrong ICP, and the wrong business model because ICP. they're trying to match the problem. It's an ideal customer persona. So that's okay. your ideal customer that you want to sell to. These are you know people that are maybe uh, you know in the healthcare vertical uh, and they work in specific niches of the healthcare vertical that could benefit from using your product. So these are the ones you only want to sell to if they don't fit this criteria, and that could be based on their tech stack. Uh, their funding, the size of their employee base, different bunches of uh, criteria you can use, you don't sell to them if they don't fit that. 
Um, and so when we meet founders at the pre-seed stage, we ask them to come to us with the problem first and how deep they understand it and show us the work that they've done to understand that problem. And then we'll start to talk about the solution. Uh, and that's when we get really excited um, because it makes us feel that they haven't overbuilt something first. They haven't tried to force their own vision onto a customer base or a market that may not want it. And they've listened to the market and the customer's needs first before they've built anything and spent any money building something. It's like the opposite of crypto, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I love that answer. And I think it ties nicely into the thesis that we stated earlier, building N equals one products to solve difficult problems, right? So moving forward, the VC market is obviously in an interesting place right now, as you know. And we won't quote you on this unless you're right, but we'd love to hear your opinion on where things are now and where you think we're headed in the coming years. Look, I mean, can I swear? Of course. Yeah. This is a great fucking time to be uh, an investor and a great time to be an early stage founder. And I say that because the tourist capital has left and the tourist founders, the, the what we call the fun entrepreneurs, have left as well. And so only the real like diehards are really sticking around to build which allows for less competition for talent, less competition for funding, and less competition for you to get the ear of you know, good investors for when you have something great. Ignoring all the AI hype and all that kind of funding there, traditional software SaaS businesses, high margin businesses are still going to be needed five, 10, 50 years from now. And I think that for us as early stage investors, we have the ability now to pick off the best ones and not have to worry about some billion dollar growth fund throwing you know millions of dollars at a company and never talking to them uh, over the course of the next year or two. We actually can have real conversations with founders. We can spend time doing proper due diligence, customer interviews, uh, refer references on the characteristics of the founders and do the job that we have to do as, as investors and fund managers. Um, that's a great thing. Is it hard? Of course it's hard, but it's not meant to be easy. You know, I always think about the, the funny line in Road Trip where the guy's like, there's no shortcuts in life. It was, if it was a shortcut, it would just be called the way. Because if it was easy and it was the right path, it would just be called the, the path to take. It wouldn't be a shortcut. And so I truly believe that there's no shortcuts in building startups, building great tech companies, and building a great VC fund. You know, you look at, um, you know, founders like Toby Lukey, the founder of Shopify. He's been at it for almost 20 years and he's still innovating and still grinding. Yeah, he's a billionaire and still like, you know, doesn't have to work, but he loves what he does. And he loves the creative process of innovating and taking on large, difficult problems. And I think that's just something that all entrepreneurs, whether they're, um, you know, in a good market or a bad market, are still going to want to, you know, pound their head against that brick wall and see if they can break through it on the hundredth time. That's the sort of market we're in right now. And for the ones who feel a little bit of anxiety or a little bit of stress, they check out and they punch out the clock and they never punch back in and they go get a job working at a bank or a consulting firm. And that's okay. Uh, but that's how you filter at the, the, you know, the wheat from the chaff kind of thing. That's like the Warren Buffett quote, right? Like be, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And I think we've seen that bubble pop in terms of venture capital that we were seeing about two years ago, where those big guys would come in with massive rounds and outprice a lot of the smaller companies uh, and it's, it's such an interesting time, good value investing opportunities for sure in venture capital. You briefly mentioned AI, and we don't have to go too deep into this rabbit hole, but just kind of curious on your thought, because as I just said, one bubble popped, 
But if there's a new bubble being created right now, it's certainly the AI bubble. Uh, just curious to hear your take on on the whole situation. Yeah, there. I think the the word bubble is like overused and you know under understood. I think like when we talk about bubbles, like you know these companies, first off, the the money that's being raised for a lot of the AI big companies out there, it's not even being used actually for software. It's being used for hardware, right? For H one hundreds from Nvidia, and so like you see a billion two seed round or whatever it is, a hundred million dollar seed round. Like 80% of that is going towards, you know, hard assets. Um, and so you, you have to first break that down and understand the exact funding split uh, on a lot of this stuff. Like, you know, that's uh, that's material capital to deploy into hard, hard assets that probably have a market value that you can sell them for. Um, that being said, I think there is definitely a race to the bottom in a lot of these applications that are being developed on top of the infrastructure from, you know, open AI uh, and stuff like that. I think the problem that we have already established is we don't want to invest in businesses that are reliant on third-party data sources to create any type of ROI for their customers unless we can validate that those uh, those data sources are always going to remain open. For example, you know, uh, government data sources, you know, um, you know, federal, municipal kind of you know, data sources on weather, on reporting, stuff like that, UN data sources, whatever it may be. You know, those aren't going away anytime soon. But when you're relying on other people's private data sources, it becomes very difficult. And we're already seeing this happen where people are sending lawsuits out and people are saying, that's my data, but you release it publicly on the web. So whose data really is it? If you put it on YouTube, is it yours or somebody else's? So there's going to be a ton of fighting around that kind of stuff. And we don't want to be caught up in that, even though it probably will work out in the end. So what we're focusing in on is AI governance uh, solutions, uh, solutions that can be built to service broad horizontal use cases and not just one specific narrow use case. Uh, and then the ability to actually have large ACV contracts right out the gate and not just this sort of like, you know, 500 bucks a month, a thousand dollars a month kind of thing. Like those are going to get copped out and, and cut off at the knees in terms of a race to the bottom. So a lot of these like video editing solutions, text to image type of things, like those are a race to the bottom. So we're not investing in those. Uh, but we are excited and we don't think, you know, uh, all of AI is a bubble. We definitely think there are parts of it that will prove to itself to be bad investments. But we do think that the technology is already impacting the productivity and efficiency of a lot of people. And the use cases that are applicable now will only get more relevant as time goes on. And that's important because comparing it to like the last crypto bubble, like the use cases were just not there, especially at the enterprise level day one. Um, and the hope was that they would be there in five to 10 years. Right now in AI, there are use cases that are impacting people today that can be useful. Maybe it's only 10% impactful, but in two years, three years, it's going to be 20% and then 40% and then doubling after that. You know, We saw this big announcement with KPMG signing a big deal with Microsoft recently. I'm sure they have no idea whether they're gonna, where they're going to apply that, but there is use cases uh, that are relevant that they can probably institute in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, which is really exciting. For sure. Yeah. And shifting gears a little bit, Matt, we want to hear about Tank Talks, your podcast you started, got the logo there right above your head if you're watching on video. Tell us a little bit more about how that came to be and some of your more memorable moments from the show. Sure. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. You know, um, so we started our incubator called The Tank, which was our, our physical workspace. 
when people came to offices for our companies, as I mentioned, to work. And, you know, every month we would host these in-person events for our founders and our employees to, you know, meet around uh, beer and pizza in the office. We had a massive boardroom and we would have people from the local Toronto startup ecosystem come and just give talks about, um, you know, recruiting, uh, go to market strategies, closed door CEO sessions, whatever we could do. And they were awesome. And we called them tank talks. And they were great until COVID shut us down and we had to close you know, the doors on the tank. And so a lot of our founders during COVID were just bored sitting at home. They're like, hey, are you still going to do tank talks? I was like, yeah, I guess I can jump on a Zoom call and everyone can do them. So we started doing them on Zoom. And some people were not able to make them at five or seven o'clock in the evening. And so they said, hey, did you record it? I was like, you know what? I did record it. Maybe I'll upload it to an RSS feed. And so we uploaded the entire RSS feed and I started editing a lot of the content myself, videos and you know, uh, audio. And one thing led to another. We ended up just expanding the people that we could bring onto the show, just like you guys are, um, because we weren't limited to the ecosystem in Toronto. And that was really cool. So we can start getting people from my network in the Valley in New York, you know, overseas in London and West Coast Canada onto the show virtually. And all of a sudden it just exploded. And so the show has been uh, going for two and a half years now. We're at over 150 episodes. We've had some incredible guests, incredible sponsors, uh, an incredible just, you know, effect, a ripple effect from, you know, the brand awareness of what we're doing. But I wanted to be very clear and specific with the aim of the show. You know, I didn't want it to be a, a 20 VC type of show where it's like, tell me your story and, you know, your words of wisdom. I wanted it to be a much more targeted show, which is funny because the Harry Stebbing show, 20 VC has gone down that path. You know, he's gone into sales VC and like, mm -hmm. you know, CFO VC, whatever. We are always focused on specific problems that people need help solving. And so it came to be of like, you know, navigating the, you know, endowment LP, you know, universe, you know, or how to, um, you know, how does a career as a special Navy forces seal for 20 years impact your role as a VC fund manager? Now that was probably our coolest show. Glenn Cowan was a, a Navy seal for 20 years. He'd done over 17 missions to Afghanistan and Middle East. And he's been a part of some top profile, high, you know, high uh, special forces missions. Um, and just having him on the show for our hundredth episode, talking about like jumping out of an airplane in the middle of the night at four, you know, I think it was like 14 or no, 25,000 feet, like 400 pounds on his back in the middle of like a military base in Afghanistan. It was pretty cool to have him on the show. We've had some amazing guests from like founders to investors to just people like telling us the truth of like what it's like to buy or to build and eventually sell a company. You know, we had a guest on the show recently who like built a company and sold it and then bought it back and the journey through that. So there's just a lot of that I've just been so lucky to have. And um, I'm in, it's a hard, hard job. You guys know it firsthand, but I think a lot of people realize that like most people who start a podcast stop after the first like 10 or 20 episodes, you know, making it to a hundred is a, is a pretty good accomplishment, but my goal is to get to like a thousand. So, you know, we're over, uh, you know, a 10th of the way there and we hope we will get there soon. So it's been fun. That's awesome. We love that. And certainly a tip of the cap from, from one podcast to another, <laughs> um, Moving forward here, starting to get getting close to wrapping up. Curious to hear, given your experience on both sides of the coin, what advice you may have for the pilgrims, which is what we call our listeners out there, that are looking to break into the world of startups and venture capital and entrepreneurship at large. Yeah, for sure. I think like a lot of things in life, we realize like how much human interaction and engagement with other humans is important and vital to our success. 
And so what I always tell people looking to get into startups, to get into investing, to get into ventures, start building your network and start tracking your network more professionally. Build an actual CRM, whether it's on Streak or whether it's in Excel or Sheets or wherever, start building a CRM of all the people in your network and start labeling them. You know, an Airtable or something, say this person is a crypto investor, this person's healthcare. Start building that, you know, repository of people in your network that you can call on when you need you know, advice or need to share something with, you know, my wife always jokes that she doesn't actually believe like I actually have a job. She just thinks that I sit at my desk all day and connect phone lines together, like an old school phone <laughs> because that's all I'm doing. I just, you know, putting people in touch with other people. Uh, but that's really a lot of what business and finance and investing is. Um, and so building infrastructure around that is really important at the very beginning. And then if you're going to be investing, document the crap out of your process. Don't just like pie in the sky and say like, oh, I made this investment because I was, you know, friends with one of the angel investors or I followed another investor's lead. Like that's terrible. Like write an investment memo, write a due diligence checklist, um, document everything, put it on, you know, LinkedIn, share your investment memo, like be out there with what you're doing because, you know, as you, you know, already know with your podcast, like, and with ours, like staying at the top of people's news feeds and what you're doing is really freaking hard with so much news out there. And so what we're very focused on at Ripple is like sharing everything that we're doing and building in the open. You know, we just wrote a big uh, blog post and uh, a podcast recording on, you know, the, how hard it is to return capital to investors as a venture fund and the models that we apply to try to return the best, you know, numbers for our LPs. Um, and so building out in the open, creating structure around what you're doing, even if it's in the very beginning uh, and building a network that you can track and, and reach out to when you need them is uh, some advice I tell everyone I meet with. Yeah, I think that's some of the best advice we've gotten on the show and really applies to whether you want to be an investor or, or an entrepreneur. So love that, Matt. Uh, also want to know any books, podcasts, or other resources that our listeners, the Pilgrims, should check out when it comes to startups, sure. venture capital. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like to only read stuff that's related to venture capital because I obsess over it so much. But one book that I always come back to uh, is The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And the reason why I love that book is because it basically goes through the human psychology of how habits are formed and broken and how we as human beings are always trying to either create new habits or break old ones. And it happens in, in business and personal lives all the time. So that was a really important book for me to read. And I read it probably like once a year or so. Um, you know, podcasts, uh, everyone should check out Tank Talks. Obviously, the All In podcast is a great one people listen to. Harry Stebbings is one of my library. And then from like a personal, like personal development one, I love the Huberman Lab podcast. You know, I, I take cold baths every day and night. I try to keep myself in tip top shape if I can with, you know, one kid uh, at two and another one on the way soon. So those are some of the things I suggest people do. Love that. Yeah. Huberman podcast has been climbing up my list as well. Love that one. I understand like uh, 5% of what he says, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. seriously, it's very easy to get lost in the jargon, but it's fascinating nonetheless. Uh, before we let you go, Matt, one more question. What is the best way for our listeners to follow along and connect with you along the journey at Ripple Ventures, Tank Talks? Shamelessly plug yourself away here. Yeah, sure. We're available everywhere. Maddie B. Cohen uh, on Twitter, Matt Cohen, uh, Ripple Ventures on LinkedIn. We've got Instagram. We've got everything you can find us at. And my email is matt at rippleventures.com. So feel free to reach out anytime. We're an open book and our team is always willing to chat. 
And last but not least, if you're a student uh, still in college or university, you check out our Ripple X Fellowship Program, which is for helping the next uh, batch of founders and funders looking to get access and information to venture capital. Love that. Yeah, we'll be sure to link all of that in our show notes. And Matt, this was a jam-packed episode. Uh, clearly, clearly, you're you're well versed in the podcasting game. Uh, double our episode <laughs> count, so this one was easy, easy flowing and and jam-packed, as I said. So we certainly had a blast. And thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another dose of startups and venture capital. And as always, we appreciate our pilgrims spreading the word about the show. Share with your friends and help someone else make the pilgrimage. See you next time. She told me that she only bumps my music when she's lonely. Thinks my vibe's a little low-key, okey-dokey, that's alright, but I don't know how to do things different.